Welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman. This week, we're going to ponder a few things that, you know, really do happen every year. Things like European draws, transfer window closures, assessments, and another question that kind of just feels like it happens every year, because it has for the last five or six, namely the question, what the hell is wrong with the German national team. We at least do have a milestone in that discussion as Hansi Flick was let go earlier this Sunday. With me for this conversation are Nick Vildhagen and Terry DeFellin. Hello, boys. Hi there. Well, it's fun to have some breaking news during an international break. That's a new one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in fact, it feels like something is maybe ready to happen with the German national team. We'll be talking about that a lot more. Terry, what's on your mind? Well, not a great deal beyond the you know, reeling from the shocking news, really, that we're about to discuss. But beyond that, I've just got back from holiday, so I'm sort of sitting here going, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow. But apart from that, yeah, everything's good. Where was the holiday? I went to Malta. Oh, right. That's right. You didn't. You, you got in some chisks, I assume. We talked about that last time. Yeah, I got some chisks, yeah. Did you bring me a chisk? No, I didn't. No! I didn't bring you a chisk. No, Hadn't I been no. a good point? I, no. Uh, no. <laughs> um, but also, also, it's nice. It's nice in a, I'm on holiday, I'm going to drink the local beer. If you go to Greece and you drink Mythos, it's beautiful in Greece. Take it home with you. It's one of those kind of beers, you know? It doesn't travel well. It reminds you of, it has echoes of a lovely holiday that you had. But actually, you know, they're far better beers to drink. I mean, it's pretty much like a pint of bitter in Hackney or in in, in Croydon. It tastes well there. But if you take a pint of bitter to Norway, it doesn't taste quite the same, does it? That's exactly how I would characterise it. Yeah, yeah. And it's probably the first time that Croydon and Malta have been ever really sort of included in the same sentence in this way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure there's plenty of Croydonites on their package holidays in Malta. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't doubt that. That's true. That's very true. People from Hackney on the other side. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> we will be back with, uh, you know, probably less beer talk and more foosball talk, although I can't guarantee that. But do remember, you can get in touch with us anytime via Twitter DM or email us, podcast at talkingfoosball.com. We do appreciate good reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you really, really want to make us feel great, and help us keep the show going. Please do support us on Patreon. We've got lots of timeless content over there, taking you through all six decades of Bundesliga history. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball. This week, there, you know, isn't any Bundesliga to speak of, but there is some pretty big news rollicking German football nonetheless. Eh, rollicking maybe is, is a little bit harsh, other than the fact that it's a bit of a sad thing when somebody loses their job. But the troubles of the German national team have been ongoing at a sort of medium to low to high to mm, level. For a good five or six years, as we've referred to at the top of the show. Germany, their latest ignominy was losing 4-1 at home in Wolfsburg to Japan. Japan, of course, being one of the teams that uh, bedeviled them in the last World Cup in Qatar. 
And everything was sort of set up for this game after a string of pretty poor results in friendlies and qualifiers in, you know, the last little while, or Nations League. Are those friendlies or are those qualifiers? Who can say? Everything was set up for Germany to try and, you know, get off on the right foot for its, you know, (laughs) European Championship non-qualifying campaign. Basically, this is entering a period of a lot of friendlies because they don't have to qualify for the tournament they're hosting. You know, they set up a marquee opponent in Japan. They're going to be playing France later in the international break. So these are two quite decent sides. And Japan was meant to be the more manageable of the two. They were not. (laughs) Japan were up 1-0 very early. Germany got one back. Japan took the lead again just a few minutes after that. It was 2-1 for the remainder of the game up until injury time. And (laughs) those two goals in the late going did not go Germany's way. Hansi Flick, the coach who has been in charge of Germany for the last two years, two years which have been marked largely by a series of experiments, some tournament failures, and other assorted, not very inspiring stuff, was fired this Sunday. I guess, Nick, I'll throw to you first. Everything about this firing feels inevitable feels kind of like we all saw it coming a mile away but it also feels like it could have happened you know immediately after the world cup for that matter that just feels like this is a team that was kind of sleepwalking through the last you know at least year yeah i mean there was a lot of talk after the world cup about hansi flick in his position and uh, there were meetings held and in the end one came to the conclusion that flick could stay. Bierhoff needed to go. There was failure of management, but not entirely uh, down to Hansi Flick. But ever since the World Cup, this team has really not produced anything of note. They have just struggled all the way, and they've struggled against nations that Germany usually is expected to beat quite handily. Japan not necessarily being one of those nations, but Japan definitely being you know a national team that Germany should have a good shout against, at least, which they didn't. I mean, Kicker wrote that everybody except for Ter Stegen, who is the goalkeeper, was basically rubbish on the night. And if your best player is your goalkeeper, I mean, that says it all, doesn't it? I mean, if it wouldn't have been for Ter Stegen, this could have gotten a lot, lot nastier. Yeah, there were some pretty interesting quotes from Ilkay Gundogan after this game, who, of course, was playing his first captain uh, of Germany. Ilka Gundogan said straight out that, you know, we might not be as good as we think we are. Yeah. Which is pretty much, I mean, how can you be more damning than that as a team captain about your teammates? But, I mean, I commented on it last time we spoke, two weeks ago, when I said that Flick, you know, he doesn't have any sort of ideas what is going wrong and how he can fix it. I mean, his big idea for this leg of internationals was actually to include Pascal Gross, who, you know, fair play to him, has had a very good time at Brighton in the Premier League. But, I mean, it doesn't really bode well for the future if you give a national team debut to a 32-year-old who's on his way to become 33. I think Gross is actually the 10th or 9th oldest debutant in the DFB. And a lot of the other debutants that were, you know, are included on the oldest list are there because, well, there was a little bit of twisted history in the 30s when the Austrian national team and the German national team were combined into the German national team and a lot of those you know older players from the Austrian national team made then their debut for the DFB if you exclude those Gross is actually a lot higher up the list but 
that being a side note, you know, if your idea is to bring in a 32-year-old and say, oh, well, that, that's the guy for the future. Well, it seems like you're being out of ideas and time has caught up with you. But, I mean, you can basically draw a direct line from Klinsmann to Löw to Flick and maybe this sort of school of thought has run its course now. Yes, indeed. I think that that's the conclusion that we can completely draw from this is that it does feel like an end of an era, so to speak. It's unfortunate for Hansi Flick because you know, otherwise a fairly successful coach and had a very, very successful stint at Bayern Munich. And he must be wondering you know, why he took this decision now. But my feeling about Germany is that they're a team that's suffering from trauma. And perhaps I'm maybe drawing too many comparisons with my own experience with England pre-Southgate is that you know, England had a succession of squads that had decent footballers, nowhere near as good as they thought they were, it should be said, but were decent and with a smattering of genuine class. But I think there were always problems in the dressing room. I think there was problems with culture. I think there was also problems with the FA's inability to select the right coach. And I think that there were also broader management issues amongst the FA, which the FA, to an extent, have addressed or at the very least acknowledged, which is, you know, for any kind of any football federation is is an achievement in of itself. And we happened upon a new coach in Southgate who is not the best international coach on the planet by any stretch of the imagination, but was able to foster the right culture and spirit within the dressing room and obviously benefit from a new crop of extremely exciting and very good young players as well. And so it demonstrates how quickly it can change if you get the right people in to do the work. Um, No doubt that there are broader issues with the DFB and people who study the DFB's activities probably will have more defined conclusions to draw and opinions to draw about that. But yes, it does feel as though a line needs to be drawn under what we can loosely perhaps term the, you know, as a homage to Raphael Honigstein, the Das Reboot era, and say to ourselves that perhaps, you know, now, we, you know, they need to go out with a way forward. But I'm not seeing any kind of evidence of what they would like to do next and where they want to go next. I think they've clearly been forced to make this decision to sack a guy a couple of days before, I mean, in the middle of an international break when you've still got a game to play on Tuesday. I mean, that's desperate. It's proper desperate stuff and it doesn't bode well for the immediate future of the German national team. I mean, you had the media reaction to that defeat and, you know, I, you know, I've got several apps of German publications on my iPhone and, you know, my push notifications ran wild last night with the article saying that Flick should be gone. Get him out of there. I mean, if you want to go the Southgate road, if you want to get in a guy who's missed a traumatic penalty in his nation's national team football, there's only one choice in Germany then. It's Uli Hoeneß as your national team coach. If I may, Nick, the German's trauma is harder to deal with because England's trauma is based upon failed penalty shootouts. It's based upon individual moments of weakness, if you want to put it like that. Although I think that's an unkind way of putting it. In fact, they're moments of strength where people who have had the courage to step forward and do an incredibly brave thing and then have failed. And it's trauma based on that. Germany's trauma is based on the fact that they've been shit. 
and have failed to qualify. They've shown no moral fibre whatsoever. And this is the dangerous route they need to be careful of because they could look at this as a failure of character and then start to come up with all manner of hokey ideas as to how to address that. And that's where things could get rather sticky for Germany if they end up making the wrong decisions. Yeah, I mean, the question is, is did Flick have the players at hand that actually could pretty much guarantee him I don't know, plays in the semifinals of the Euros. Do we think that this current crop of players is good enough to guarantee him at least a quarterfinal place or maybe a place in the semifinals? You know, I, I don't think so. And I mean, Flick was actually one of the few people or pretty much the only person at the DFB who commented on the upcoming problems that were going to face Germany after that win in Brazil, when he said that we are missing a trick in terms of what other nations are currently doing in their youth football, we are not fostering enough individual quality on the pitch. We are emphasizing tactics too much. Yeah, this is a conversation I feel like has been going on, as you say, ever since Germany started sort of wandering in the wilderness. And it kind of actually ties into the conversation. Well, it's, I don't know. It's not. A, it's, it's rather ill-tempered conversation, to be frank which we touched upon in our first episode of the season about you know youth football reform and the way that it's setting up as something of a generational opposition really i mean i'm not going to say that rudy fuller who is the you know sort of figurehead of the german national team at the moment who's going to be taking over on a temporary basis as coach with hannes wolf and sandra wagner on his side necessarily represents one side or the other, but he's definitely the choice of the Greybeards who put together the task force or whatever that happened after the, you know, Cutter World Cup and sort of installed himself in the, you know, head man position after that. But like, it's hard to avoid the idea that having Fuller back in charge, who of course was the coach in the early 2000s, is something of a step back for the DFB and the German national team. <laughs> We just talked about that direct line from Klinsmann to Flick via Love, And I mean, yeah. Fuller was the guy before that started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if we're putting Fuller back in, we're basically saying, you know, we are in the same spot or, you know, he is well equipped now 22 years later or whatever from the last time that he was in there. I know that it's just one game. I know that they're saying we want a long-term solution, but like... The conversation we were talking about with the youth football reform debate with, you know, trying to de-emphasize results for very young kids and trying to play small-sided uh, games where more kids can get more reps and get more, you know, time on the ball, being pushed back by the likes of Aki Vatska from Dortmund or, you know... Stefan Baumgart. Yes, yeah, Stefan Baumgart or, or Didi Hamann, my favorite whipping boy. Hannes Wolf, who is, of course, going to be one of the assistants against France this week, is totally on the other side of that. He's been one of the most outspoken people talking about why this is necessary. And I think he's the one who's got the studies on his side. He's the one who's got his finger on the pulse of how youth football is actually conducted in most progressive countries these days. And it's going to be, you know, I really hope that the sort of old man, graybeard, retrograde types don't get their way when it comes to hiring a new permanent manager, although I'm afraid they might. I mean, Hannes Wolf is actually a guy who's coached youth football. Mm -hmm. Extensively. Extensively, indeed. I mean, he's even coached Borussia Dortmund 2, I think. So Aki Vaske should know what he, you know, is all about. I mean, and he, I think he's coached youth football at Dortmund too, and quite successfully so. 
And Aki Vatska, obviously due to his position on the DFB, should presumably have been aware of those proposals before they were announced. So why is he criticising them after they've been announced? Uh, which suggests to me that he's not doing his job if he's not reading all of his briefs, right? So I don't think that particularly bodes well. I think there's something odious about Aki Vatska's remarks because they stem from this kind of view that, you know, that success has to be about suffering and that will to win and that desire to win and, and completely discounts just how, particularly how young children, how they develop and that you know, people develop differently and at different times. I mean, it's all very well, Aki Vatska. Guys, like, guys like Aki Vatska are like life's winners, right? They've been successful people. And so they tend to have a view that if you adopt these virtues of hard work and suffering, you know, and competitiveness, then you will inevitably be successful, which is, of course, not true. And I don't think that that is certainly a view that you should take when you're trying to coach young children. And I'm with you, Matt. I think Hannes Wolf, is, he's the guy who's got the data and the experience and the research on his side. And Aki Vatska is slagging off something that he presumably would have had the chance to have influenced due to his position on the DFB at the time when this was in development. So it reflects very poorly on him. But if you've seen the way Dortmund have kind of started to become managed over the last couple of years or so, perhaps it's not altogether surprising as well. I mean, that guy, I think, needs to show a little bit more attention to detail. Yeah. And the strange thing, too, I mean, Nick, you sort of brought this up. I guess maybe this is before we started recording, but lacking individual class is one problem that I think we can sort of identify as having been, you know, a bit of their issue over the past few years. And, you know, there's been a renewed conversation about, you know, mentality or about effort or about body language. There was a lot of sort of consternation or maybe confusion about the way that a lot of the players reacted to this loss versus Japan and some losses in the recent past somewhat sheepishly or in a way that indicated that they were not necessarily feeling very self-confident in the way that the team was sort of working from the inside. And like, yes, mentality is something that's important in any football team. You know, you want to have a team that likes playing together, that feels like it has a plan, that feels like it's sort of a coherent unit. But you know, that might be something that you could fix with a sort of motivating kind of coach. But ultimately, like the long-term solution of the individual quality and the sort of players who can take on other players one-on-one -on -one or, or have come up with moments of brilliance, that's what you fix with giving kids more touches on the ball. So I don't see how those two things can really... I mean, maybe one's, one's a, a long-term project and the other one's just a let's not embarrass ourselves at the, uh, the Euros next year problem. But... There's something in tension there. It's worth pointing out. I mean, Argentina won the World Cup with a good team. I mean, yes, they have Messi, but Messi, an ageing Messi, but nevertheless, you know, the, the kind of player who can obviously do these things. And when we talk about that kind of player, you talk about Matt, we're all talking about Messi is what we're talking about. Our minds immediately go to Leo Messi. Yeah, the best to have ever done it. Yes, to have ever done it. But Argentina won that World Cup with a few journeymen, I think, in that side. I think it's reasonable to say that. So it is with the right mentality and with the right coaching, you know, and you get the right blend right, you can go far in short form summer tournaments, which is what international teams are all about. That's what they exist for. So 
you know, there's not a lot there that I, I think that can't be fixed in the short term. We talk about Rudy Verla and we talk about the period of time that he is symbolic of. But let's remember that as difficult to watch as that Germany team was in 2002, they got to the final. <laughs> By sheer bloody mindedness, they got to the final. Mm-hmm. Oof. I mean, the two things that worked in favour of that German team, one of them was Miroslav Klose, and the other one was, uh, and much more importantly, was Oliver Kahn. Yeah, I'd say Michael Ballack as well, played a big role in it as well. Yeah. I mean, the thing that reminds me, of what I always think about, about that 2002 German team, is that's thinking, how is this team still in this bloody tournament? They are rubbish, but they just persisted and just kept going. So, you know, and, and this, but again, we need to be careful of this because we don't want to be looking at that and saying, well, this is how you do it. You just, you know, show some character and some gumption and that will get you that far. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of like the Stefan Effenberg, Mario Basler type of talk on, on Doppelpass, like, you know, we drank beer, smoked and we ran and we fought and, you know. And when you actually look at the matches those guys played in the 90s and you actually measure the terms of the, you know the effort they put in you can just say that chaps what you did compared to current players is pop football yeah i turned up to the trainer and I, I broke my leg and my leg was hanging off the knee and the trainer just said to me oh you can play for 20 minutes get out there and, <laughs> you know it is just not not how we want to do things anymore it's all it just feels i'm just worried that germany are going to go brexit basically and just like you know harken back to a time that that never truly existed. So mm. that's a big concern. There, are, there could be a bit of a crossroads here. I think it's important that the right people make the decision on this. I'm not optimistic that they will. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of a reminiscent of what Watzke is maybe doing in a sort of a more um, eloquent way than Barza and Effenberg and these chaps is that, you know, he, he tries to emphasise what is ever so... Um, mistakenly presented by more traditional-minded people as German values within the world of football. You know, fighting, running, tackling, uh, you know, these things that, you know, we play, we defend, and, we, you know, it looks nasty, but we win 1-0. You know, that type of thinking. And whilst that type of thinking worked during Jupp Deval's time and partly worked during Bertie Vogt's time, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I feel the greater Love era, which we can say extends to Jurgen Klinsmann's time when Love was doing a lot of the tactical work, and maybe can even extend past his time when Flick was in it. That era was one that I feel where Germany, the DFB, and perhaps German fans grew to expect something more than just grinding out effort wins. I mean, obviously, the wins are the most important thing in a lot of people's minds. They want to, you know, win titles, and they did win titles, but... You know, I don't think that sort of, you know, <laughs> crash and bash, you know, let's squeeze this out stuff is going to really satisfy people anymore. I mean, obviously, they would satisfy a certain type just to win at all costs. But I feel like Germany went on something of a journey to improve the aesthetics of their football and to improve the skill level, improve, you know, a number of you know aspects of the way that they approach the game tactically. And now you just got to take the next step, which is to, you know, get players who are even better and players who have a bit more spark, a bit more individuality. Indeed. And, you know, I mean, yes, as, as Terry said, it's really important that the right people make these decisions. I mean, the people who have actually read those papers, the people who work within youth football, the people who know what they're talking about. It's a bit like, I mean, the choice between Hannes Wolf and Aki Watzke, if I want to put it into quite stark terms, is a bit like listening to a surgeon who says, you need this surgery, 
or I don't know, one of these prayer channel guys who says, I just gotta say praise the Lord and it will fix the cancer. You know, I know which one I would prefer. And uh, I mean, what Aki Vatsky is basically doing is, you know, he's saying the same sort of prayers that German football officials have sat since the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. And uh, as I said, it's, it's not working anymore. It's, it's old, it's outdated. And uh, obviously, Terry feels that Aki Vatsky might be outdated himself at, at, in the position that he is currently in all right, all right. No, no i didn't i didn't i didn't say that i didn't say that at all um <laughs> I, I was just just expressing a, a degree of frustration about how things are gone and i implacably disagree with aki Vatska's comments and the attitude that i perceive from that a note of optimism however rudy verla did spend a significant amount of time as sporting director of Bayer leverkusen he's only recently stopped doing that Bayer leverkusen are a club of whom people have strong opinions and they have a psychodrama all of their own but I don't believe that they're an inefficiently run football club. They spend their money, generally speaking, quite well. And I think, generally speaking, punch above their weight. And so we can draw perhaps some confidence that Rudy Vula, as you know, the guy who ultimately will have to make this call, will make a sensible call. But I just feel that there'll be people within the greater DFB who might have some views. Well, I mean, if I'd known that that we talked this much about Rudy Fuller, we should have invited Derek Ray on this podcast to have him explain why he's called Tantiketa. <laughs> Before we wrap this topic up, we should probably talk a little bit about some of the names being thrown around. Obviously, the DFB has a little bit of time to move, considering Rudy Fuller is taking over for the next game against France. It's a weird mix of names which are being sort of put out in the press. A couple of people who would be big gets for Germany. A couple of people who kind of feel like yesterday's men. A couple of not very inspiring names. I'll just sort of go through them. Matthias Zammer, who has had various roles within the DFB, within, you know, Dortmund, Bayern, he's been kicking around. He's, of course, legendary player. Louis van Hal would be, you know, an interesting choice, especially because he's not German, but of course had some very, very successful years with Bayern. Oliver Glasner, who has not found another job after having been uh, sort of mutually let go by Eintracht Frankfurt. And then we have the big names. We've got uh, Julian Nagelsmann, who is also out of work and probably would be the highest prestige choice of the guys who don't have work right now. And the big, big, big kahuna, Jurgen Klopp. Any of those names turn you on, boys? No, not really. I think Louis van Gaal is uh, not outdated. I think Louis van Gaal is a brilliant coach, but... If you think long-term, as Fellow said, he's just simply too old. Sure, yep. Oliver Glasner is a bit like... I don't know, I mean, he's sort of like a, a coach of the RB mold, if you know what I mean. And that football is sort of starting to get outdated, in, in my view. I mean, even RB Leipzig are not playing RB football at times these days. I, you know, Oliver Glasner, he just sort of strikes me like... You know, those bins that you have, like, in supermarkets with uh, food that has, you know, gone beyond its expiry date. Sure, yes. Yeah. That, that bin <laughs> is where you find Oliver Glasner, and I would put Matthias Sama into the same bin, I'm afraid. Yeah. And, you know, the other two names I would be ex enthused about, but I don't think... I mean, Jürgen Klopp, I think we just can forget. I don't think he's interested. He's just extended his contract in Liverpool. I mean, I think his contract runs for another season as well, so... 
I don't know. I think he might be a choice down the line, but it's still a little bit too early for him. And, you know, Julian Nagelsmann, yes, out of a job, but still under contract with Bayern. And Bayern paid 20 million euros for him. So my thought is that, well, Bayern is not going to let him go to the DFB on a free transfer. I mean, they paid 20 million euros for the guy. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they want to get some of that cash back. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. When I saw the quote from Fuller saying that they don't want uh, a quote-unquote AM trainer or somebody who's just going to coach for the European Championships and then then move on. I thought that actually probably hurt their chances of being able to get somebody like Nagelsmann who is out of work. But maybe if he saw that, it's just a sort of interlude, you know, where he's going to be coaching for six or seven months. He would see that as not being problematic in building what's probably going to be a long career from here. Yeah, I think they've got a really big uphill battle to find an appropriate person. I mean, if we just set AM coach and let's just get through the years and do so decently, Fungal would be obviously a brilliant choice. Yeah, that would work too, for sure. But I mean, Fungal is past 70. Well, you know, I mean, like he wouldn't be the only coach. Yeah, Roy Hodgson does it, I know. I, I know. think it would be wiser <laughs> to go for an interim, um, interim-ish coach and get somebody to come in and then allow yourself the time to consider what to do after the Euros and bring someone like that in. I mean, obviously, Jurgen Klopp, I think, is on that list because I think it's, it's impolite or discourteous to not include him because he's German and he's a very successful coach. But it's hard to imagine him being prized away from Liverpool for any reason at this point. Sammer hasn't coached a first team in a long time. He's spent an awful lot of time in boardrooms and not enough time on the training ground, I think, to be discounted. I think Louis van Gaal, in theory, is a great choice of coach. I'm concerned about whether or not his methods will sit with the players. And I think that's the thing that needs to be thought through because he's fairly old school in his approach. And I suspect the way in which he deals with the players will be something of a departure to how Hansi Flick did things. That may be a good thing. I can't see Oliver Glasner. I just can't picture it, I'm afraid. And Julian Nagelsmann, they can't afford him. And I just think it's the wrong project for him at this time in his career. William Nagelsmann needs to, you know, find a club that's stupid enough to pay off his contract at Bayern Munich and get him in there. I mean, you know, it's, what is it, September? So by October, November, there will be a Premier League club that'll be ready to pay him out of his contract, possibly Newcastle. I think that Julian <laughs> Nagelsmann doesn't... Well, there, yeah, they got the money to pay off his contract and Eddie Howe, I think, is probably yeah, maybe three or four defeats away from the sack. So so I think that there's a future for Julian Nagelsmann at this point and he should wait it out. So the cupboard's pretty bare when it comes to choices and they might have to show a little bit of imagination or no imagination and pick somebody, I don't know, you know give it to Sam Allardyce until the end of the season or something like that. Well, there you have it. Yeah, and the DFB, let's face it, they're not typically uh, an organization that likes to go for, you know, sort of high-priced, high-profile club coaches. I mean, the history of the, of the national team coaches for Germany is mostly people who have had either some kind of, you know, playing career with Germany or, you know, time served in the youth ranks. Asking them to go for the sort of the top shelf of the coaching shop is not in their character. Yeah. I mean, from Herberger until uh, Bertie Fuchs, basically, all of these people had a pass in the German national team as players. And, uh, you know, went then the route of, you know, becoming DFB coaches. I mean, Erich Ribbig was, I think, in a sense, a departure in that he was a, an active coach for many, many years and coached many club sides. 
They should do a management team of Stefan Effenberg, Lothar Matthias, and Didi Harmon. <laughs> Give him the job and say, go on in. Get on with it. Go on in. <laughs> Fellas. On you go, lads. You know so much about it. I mean, what are you thinking that if you have so many people who consistently get stuff wrong and they have to compromise, <laughs> they will get it right. Like minus and minus gets to be plus. And stopped clocks telling the right time twice a day. <laughs> Wait, do we need an even or an odd number of them then in order to, to create good outcomes? <laughs> I mean, Lothar Matthias is actually the only one with some coaching experience of that bunch of any, any sort of considerable amount. So he would have to go, obviously. So Effenberg and Basler, team smokes and drinks and, you know, let's party until four in the morning before our next match. They got it. All right, let's take a break and come back and talk about club football, why don't we? Here comes part two of Talking Foosball. We're moving on from uh, the German national team. We're talking now about the Bundesliga Fußball that we are missing right now. We have a couple of things on our minds. One being deadline day. It's a little while ago now, a good week and a half. But it's probably worth talking for a moment about the teams who really put together a good window and maybe the ones that just didn't. Bayern. Obviously, it's hard to say that they had a bad window. But they did. When they picked up. I know. Isn't that crazy? They they got Kane. They got, you know, Kim. But they didn't get Paulinha. So the sky is now falling. But, I mean, the thing is, they sold Pavard. They loaned Stanisic to Bayer Leverkusen, a team that potentially might be one of their adversaries for the title. But they didn't get in a new right back. And they didn't get in a new holding midfielder, you know, who could have allowed Tuchel to play Kimmich on right back. As obviously Tuchel himself says openly in the press that Kimmich is not, you know, a holding midfielder. I don't see him that way. I'm sure that's music for Kimmich's ears. I mean, he, yes, uh, he looks always enthused when he's playing on the pitch. But I mean, he's forced to play him there now. Because he's got 18 players, basically. And Bayern have to fill up their bench with youth players for each and every Bundesliga match. Which, you know, is, is maybe a chance for one of those guys to shine at some point. Because, I mean, obviously these players otherwise would play in the Regionalliga Bayern. But yeah, I mean, it's a bad, bad window. I mean, how can you sell two right-backs and not get in another right-back? Or failing that, get in a holding midfielder, which would allow Tuchel to play Kimmich at right-back absolutely disastrous that means that there actually is knock on wood actually a fairly big chance that we might get some excitement in that title race this year as well i mean Bayern cannot do anything about this until this winter and Bayern is not necessarily known as, as you know for being a club that buys during the winter because um, i mean players during the winter transfer window are usually overpriced because those moves obviously reek of desperation. And uh, I mean, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny to see Tuchel going toe-to-toe with his uh, with Dresden from the Bayern board. In the press, you know, Tuchel saying that, well, I have to say that our squad is rather small. And Dresden then replying in other press channels, well, it's Tuchel's job to be creative with what he's been given. So, uh, you know, I mean, not all is well at Bayern, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's difficult for them because, you know, having... Well, I mean, I say difficult for them. This is of their own making but yeah we're having to make big changes in the summer after what was a disappointing season 
no CEO, no sporting director, you know, or, or that is to say that they're making these changes at the moment. And so, you know, signing players on deadline day is very, very tricky thing to do. I don't think if memory serves, Bayern have a great deal of experience doing it. Three of those players, all three of those players are coming from Premier League clubs. And those guys are just like, it's like the Wild West in England in the Premier League when it comes to deadline day. You know, it's all a massive circus. And there's a lot of grandstanding that goes on. And, you know, if you don't have someone experienced better manage these deals, you know, on those days, then you get caught out. And that's what's happened. It looks like that's what's happened with Bayern Munich. And it's odd because, you know, if you've been observing and following the Bundesliga for as long as collectively we have, we are more or less within our collective memories only know Bayern Munich to be this very well-run, very efficient football club that makes choices, make choices in advance, has the right people at all levels to be able to to make certain that things like this don't happen. And then when they do happen, it's kind of odd and, you know, and I guess, yeah, when I mean, you could say it's quite funny. And yeah, and it op- unlocks the potential of, you know, what could be a, a really interesting Bundesliga season as well. So I think f- as Bundesliga fans, we, we should be quite pleased. I think it Bayern fans, I think that, you know, they'll be they'll feel better when that guy from Salzburg is in situ and and they can maybe put start to put together a, a coherent recruitment strategy. I still feel Bayern have got plenty to win a title this season for definite. But you know, I mean, it could prove to be a challenge, and that'll be nice because it's nice to have a challenge. Mm, it is, and you know, I mean. What really strikes me is that Tuchel, he tends to run into problems with the board. You don't say. Or the officials at pretty much every club that he's coached. And it seems to be happening rather early at Bayern. Mm -hmm. It usually happens in like year two or three. It does. (laughs) But, you know, Dresden's reply in the press was, you know, so passive aggressive and unsupportive. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, reading between the lines, you just could hear that, well, you know, we probably offered Tuchel a few players that we could have signed, but he sort of didn't find good enough. Yeah. So I think probably Bayern's bot is looking at that squad thinking, well, hang on, it's not entirely our fault that we are in the current situation and the current problematic situation that we put ourselves into. All right, did... Anybody's transfer window, if Bayern was something of a disappointment with some good new players coming in, but some puzzling pieces missing from their puzzle, who had a good transfer window? I think certainly Leverkusen comes to mind. Yeah, definitely Leverkusen for me. Uh, I think Hoffman, Jacka, two inspired signings. I think they are, I mean, I tipped them to be title winners and um, so far they've got nine out of nine possible points and uh, it looks rather good after three matches sure yeah i think you've got to look at union as well haven't you yeah robin gosens is- robin gosens is a fantastic signing i know yes yes aronson and yes yes Manucci. that's like wow i mean having royalty coming along but but robin gosens i think is you know a fantastic signing and kevin forland you know when when eligible to play is a potentially cracking signing as well I would love to just give a bit of love for Dortmund signing a full Krug on deadline day. Sorry, Nick, that's probably a bit. You know what? You know what? We are actually going to be on two different lines because I think that you signed a thirty-year-old who's been rather injury-plagued for a lot of money. It it wasn't a lot of money, to be fair. I mean, there are more expensive thirty-year-old strikers that came into the Bundesliga. 
than that. I think that for a backup to Alea, there's all manner of reasons what's wrong with it. I mean, usually in the past, Borussia Dortmund would have found some kid from France that they would have just brought in. No, because you need older people who know what it's like to lose 5-0. Yeah, and, you know, Nicolas Fulkrug, I think he's definitely that guy. <laughs> Yeah. He's played on the right team for it, definitely. Yeah, remember his, his Hanover days? He lost 5-0, surely then. And Reuterford, he's played for two. But his reaction after the Bochum game was like, you know, base, I don't remember his exact words, but he was essentially, it was like, this is a mess, you know. I mean, so, you know, I mean, I think that it's potentially a, a good locker room signing for Krug. But, I mean, it's noteworthy in that it's sort of like... It's, telling us a little bit about where Dortmund are and the extent of their ambitions at the moment. On the one hand, yes, he is the joint Bundesliga top scorer. On the other hand, he's Niklas Fulkrug. So, you know. You know, I think it might be actually a rather wise thing to sell Niklas Fulkrug from a Werder perspective because a lot of the focus has been on Niklas Fulkrug. It's been all been, you know, get the ball to Fulkrug. You have to get the ball to Fulkrug. And I mean, this sort of trick runs at course after a season or two. And uh, I think... Fulkrug probably would have found it difficult to score as many goals for Werder in this season. So changing the environment for him, I think, might be a wise thing in terms of his national team ambitions. Additionally, it makes Werder a little bit more unpredictable as they've got guys like Voltamade, Kovnacci, uh, Ninja, you know, who all try to, you know, get that spot beside Marvin Duksch. All of these three guys you know, offering different qualities and different outlets, which uh, I think might mean that Werder might be a little bit more unpredictable to defend. I mean, we saw that in the game against Mainz, uh, Nimja actually getting a, a, a goal and an assist, uh, Voltamata getting an assist, Dukes scoring as well, and, you know, Werder not conceding a single goal for the first time this season in an official match, which, uh, you know, made Niklas Stark make a rather unnecessary remark directed towards Niklas Fulkrug. Saying that, well, now that, um, you know, greetings to Nicholas Fulkrug, we finally learned how to defend. Uh, Nicholas Fulkrug obviously having, uh, you know, that said a few weeks prior that Verda's defense was known for being idiots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nicholas, not the biggest fan of Nicholas and vice versa. <laughs> Let's move on from the transfer window. Uh, as I said, it feels... Feels a little moldy at this point. Let's talk about the more recent news, which is only, you know, a little less moldy, but, you know, still worth it. Maybe from the perspective of Germany's stalwart away fans, that's uh, the European draws. All the teams in Germany who are participating in uh, various European competitions, I guess it's seven this fall, found out where they're going to be headed for their uh, group stages. Let's talk about these from... <laughs> the away day perspective. My personal choice for the team that ended up with the nicest draw in that respect is FC Union Berlin, I have to say. Real Madrid, Napoli, and Braga. That's hard to beat, man. They're so lucky. They're so lucky to have got that draw. You know, I mean, who knows? This could be it for Union. They may never be back in the Champions League ever again. I don't know. Maybe they will be, you know, mainstays. But if you are going to have your one and only season in the Champions League, it doesn't get better than Madrid, Naples and Braga. I, I think I think, I think B4B has actually got a pretty... I mean, they've got Newcastle, which kind of sucks, you know, because who wants to, you know... Play in front of the cast of Geordie Shaw. <laughs> that is um, that is a but, uh, that is a scandalous remark. 
And the people of Newcastle, they don't take any shit. Ooh, they're coming for you. From oiks from Stavanger who have got ideas about Newcastle. Newcastle, for the record, ladies and gentlemen, is a beautiful city. And it produces one of the worst beers ever, which is called Newcastle Brown Ale. Well, that, is also, that is also true. <laughs> I mean, if you measure a city by the quality of the beer it produces, Newcastle definitely definitely is one of the places to avoid but i mean uh, milan paris i mean two fashionable cities i mean th- those cities have fashion shows yep. newcastle yep. don't newcastle fashion week not an international draw not yet i understand it's just got some funding from the public investment fund um so probably so that'll all change milan and paris are too expensive and yeah, all right, fair enough, yes. I mean, I would defend the people of Newcastle largely because I live on the same landmass as them, so it's in my interest to do that. <laughs> but yes, no, I, I don't think actually that's as big a draw. I, I think Bavarians have got the better deal mm. after that from a Manchester, Istanbul and Copenhagen are all fine cities to go and visit. It's high yeah. quality. Copenhagen is, is solid. I mean, that is my first choice for big city getaway if I, if I want to get away. It's pretty much one of the, the loveliest cities in Europe and... Uh, Talk about the beer they produce. It's pretty darn good compared to Newcastle. I suppose we should address the final team in the Champions League and their draw. Leipzig, they'll be heading to Manchester as well, although the the blue side of the city, Uh, along with Red Star, Belgrade, and uh, Young Boys, Bern. You know, a little less, I don't know, sort of thrilling that, but I think that's not a bad array. It sort of makes back. I think the the matches against Red Star obviously are quite exciting. I mean, they probably got one of the most explosive fan bases in all of Europe. Great stadium too, apparently. Never been to the Maracaná, but apparently beautiful stadium. Great stadium too. Yeah. I mean, you know, whenever you talk about European derby days, the Red Star Partisan Derby is always mentioned in you know at least in the top five or top ten of, of every sort of uh, podcast or TV show that you know discusses biggest European derbies, and obviously there's a reason for that. Uh, Bern? I don't know. I mean, Switzerland? Is Switzerland exciting? I, yeah. I've been to Bern a couple of times. I like it. Not the kind of place that I'm in a giant hurry to get back to. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, yes, this is nice. This is where I want to park my money. But I can, you know, live away from my money. I just needed to be safely stored in those safes without the tax authorities in my country noticing it being there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that will be a convenience for, uh, you know, Leipzig fans or maybe Leipzig board members who are, you know, rich enough to afford the uh, the entry fee. They've probably got a bit of money they'd like to park. I do hear good things about the atmosphere at the Wankdorf Stadium. Yes. You know, it's supposed to be... It's, it's a historic stadium. It's a historic stadium for Germany, by the way. Uh, German national team uh, won its first World Cup there. Yep. The Wunder von Bayern is indeed, yeah. Yeah, there's some historic ties there as well. Obviously, Bayern and Manchester United, of course, have a very, very strong historic tie as well. So for obviously far more tragic reasons. But yeah, I mean, it's a nice smattering there, I think, for the German clubs. I think that they can be pleased. And from the football point of view too, you know... Pretty even Stevens. I mean, like that, be- that Dortmund group is nicely balanced, actually. I think I think that there's enough wiggle room in there. And I like the Bayern, Man U, Galatasaray and Copenhagen. I mean, I would say Copenhagen, presumably the outsider of those two. But, you know, Man U are playing so poorly right now that they're like all vibes. And Galatasaray, I watched them playing Mulder in their qualifier and they're pure vibes. They're wonderful to watch. Absolutely. I got Icardi and they got Dries Mertens. And if he gets fit, Wolf Zaha. 
you know, there's lots to enjoy, I think, about this guy. I don't normally get excited about Champions League groups because they tend to just draw up the same kind of games. But this looks nice. I like this. Gallo's the vibes team in Turkey now because I feel like there's always one vibes team that has a bunch of guys like, oh, he's there now. Yeah. And things are just kind of, whoa, I wonder how that's going to work. There's got a bunch of guys there who are thinking, ah, if we'd waited five more minutes, we'd be in Saudi Arabia now for about treble the wages. But there you go. Okay, speaking of Molda, since you brought up Molda, oddly enough, the non-Norwegian did that. Uh, They are going to be facing Leverkusen in a Europa League group, along with Karabag from uh, Azerbaijan, and a team I was literally unaware of until looking at these lists, Beka Hecken from Sweden. Nick, I'm told they're managed by a Norwegian. Yes, I don't know if they're still managed by Norwegian, but they were at least managed to, to the championship by uh, none other than uh, Per Matthias Högmo, who used to be the actually the Norwegian national team coach and who really screwed that up badly, badly. I mean, he has a decent past in Norway as a, as a Tromso coach, then was the coach of Rosenberg, where he really didn't fit at all. I actually lived in Tromsø for a short while when he was living there. Those were dark days. Dark days, Nick. <laughs> Literally. Those were... The, the, it was actually during the wintertime. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I used to go out to a place called Verdenstheater, the theatre of the world, where Per Matthias would sit at around 10 and uh, visibly intoxicated, whilst I was, you know, still on my first or second beer for the night. And, yeah, uh, you know, I, I know that Per Matthias does like his drink. Be that as that may, I'm... Respect for him to, you know, coaching BK Hacking to the, I think, their first Swedish championship. Molde, obviously, a soldier team in the past. They've actually had one of the best fundings within Norwegian football. Current reigning Norwegian champions, but not doing as well as Budeglimt or Viking Stavanger at the moment. How do you rate these Scandinavian destinations for the away fan, though, more importantly? being Molde, and I guess Hecken's a, a, is a place? No idea. Um, <laughs> never been I, to, I can I, see it on a map in front of me. It's sort of a good ways up the uh, the west coast of Sweden, but I don't know anything about that area. Neither do I. It's not Stockholm. <laughs> I, you know, I, I would assume it to be rather more provincial uh, than, you know, uh, Gothenburg, Stockholm, or even Malmö. Yep, we've narrowed it down. That's his motto. We're not Stockholm. Gothenburg or Malmö. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets cold. Uh, Molde, I've, I've actually never been to, but I know it's called the City of Roses and it actually has a jazz festival. You know, that's, that's the extent of facts that I do know about Molde. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, Newcastle Fashion Week. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances of somebody going to the Molde Jazz Festival or the Newcastle Fashion Week or maybe doing even both? <laughs> You, you can you can take that plunge, Nick. Uh, Freiburg have two real name branders in their group: West Ham and Olympiakos. Two you know pretty big, I guess, fan destinations there. Along with another, did you know, team called Bačka Topola from Serbia. I'm going to just take a wild guess and say getting to Bačka Topola uh, for a game is going to be no mean feat. I mean, how far away is it from Belgrade? Let's ask Google. While you're checking where it is, the Newcastle Fashion Show and Shopping event 
is on the 16th of September <laughs> at St. Francis Church, High Heaton. It starts at 6.30, so, so you know. Nice. I mean, Bechka is, is a motorway uh, drive away. Uh, um, Novi Sad is actually the next large city, it seems. Yeah, it, it, it says, I'm, I'm told it's only a little over an hour's drive from Belgrade to Topolo, so. Oh, well, that's not too bad. You can do that. I mean, that, that flight's going to Novi Sad, right? I mean, Novi Sad has big music festivals and stuff, so I mean, it should, should be doable, but um, I mean, it's a, it's a Thursday night. Well, maybe not the most historic side you could have drawn in such a competition. You know, it's not Juventus or Real Madrid or... Well, it's the Europa League, mate. Yeah, but... Real you know, Madrid I mean, aren't, are in the Champions League and, Euro- and Juventus didn't qualify for the Europa League and have been banned, so... Yes, yes, but I mean, I mean, I mean in the sense of, you know, when you play in Europe, whatever competition, it's it's not that sort of the, you know, that the club of that stature. Well, they've got West Ham. I mean, what more do you want? They're gonna get, they get to go to Shoreditch. Shoreditch. Freiburg fans should stay at the Travel Lodge in East Croydon and then walk to West Croydon Station and then just get on the overground. And that'll take them up to East London. And it's a much, much cheaper journey for them. So if they're listening to this and then they can then hang out in East London for a little while. Uh, at Stratford, obviously. I say Shoreditch because actually it's Stratford, to be fair. But, you know. It is Stratford. It's, it is. Yeah, lads, gotta- lads, lads, lads. We should definitely start a travel agency for away fans. Well, yeah, but everything has to start at Croydon, though. Terry DeFellin <laughs> sorts all the London destinations. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll book you in at a Premier Inn at East Croydon, all right? £60 a night. All roads lead to East Croydon. So Croydon, they do, well, I mean, this is a fact. They, they genuinely do. They genuinely do. But yeah, no, that's actually, I mean, the trip to Stratford should be a fun for the Freiburg fans. And uh, good atmosphere there because the Happy Hammers, they do like their European nights. They don't get too many of them. And it's a miserable solar stadium, but I mean, it's, 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 it's quite big, so they should be able to get tickets. Yeah, and it's right next to a big-ass mall. It certainly is. Okay, lastly, we had the UEFA Europa Conference League draw. Just one German team at the moment there. Eintracht Frankfurt. I think this is actually a sneaky, fun group. It is. HJK, Helsinki, Aberdeen, and Paok Thessaloniki. This is the only group, I think, that, uh, you know, will legitimately probably take most of these fans to places they never would have gone. You know, I think Helsinki is a fun city, especially during uh, you know winter time. Yes, it's cool and that and all that, but it's a fun place to drink, a fun place to be, and you know Finland is generally a fun place to be. And you know, I mean, Finnish football is actually um, not as bad as its rap. So I mean, Frankfurt might face some stiff opposition there. And Aberdeen, well, that, I mean, that that is another side that does have a bit of a history in European competitions. Yep. I mean, they, they were once coached by Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah, they won the European Cup Winners' Cup. Yes, yep. they did, under under Ferguson, which, I mean, that's where the magic that is Sir Alex started. For sure. I hope um, Derek Ray gets the opportunity to work on that game because uh, he, of course, is an Aberdeen native and frequently extols the virtues of both that city and the club. It, it, right by the coast, right sits by the North Sea, Pitodri. I've never been there, but it's on my list of places that I would love to go and watch a football match. If I was an Eintracht Frankfurt fan, I'd be making it my business to try and get along to these games because they all look great. Those are great away days. And a nice contrast, guess. It'll be a bit cold, but then there's the warmth of Thessaloniki as well. 
does get chilly in Thessaloniki come you know November. Yeah, does it really? It's in northern Greece, isn't it? A, isn't it a port city as well? It is. So yeah. you do have you do have like a bit of a wind from the sea. Mm-hmm. So they were all port cities, aren't they? Because isn't Helsinki's probably a port city, isn't it? Yeah. So okay, so that's a nice little connection there. Okay, that's it for this edition of Talking Foosball. Lovely to spend time with you again, Nick and Terry. Great to be back together, and I'm I'm already looking forward to the you know seeing you boys again in, in a couple of weeks from now hopefully with some good news on both the football and beer front I will have had some exciting Bundesliga results to speak about and I'm sure everyone is very much looking forward to Bayer versus Bayern on Friday Ooh. yeah yeah what a difference a single N makes alright <laughs> thanks very much for listening thanks very much again to our all-star producer Aiden Rantoul this is some next and all y'all 